0: There's usually a lot of pomp and pageantry and a lot of to-do Anytime someone famous makes an appearance, you know, whether that's a famous athlete or musician or actor or president or leader, uh, there's always a lot of attention drawn to them. You know, everything stops. Traffic is stopped. Uh, streets are cordoned off. Uh, cameras are everywhere. Uh, regular shows are interrupted. Uh, I mean, we're used to seeing that. Anyone that's prominent in our society demands a lot of attention and gets a lot of attention uh, any time that uh, that happens and the uh, the high and the lofty come down, you know, to, to us regular folks. Uh, it's quite the contrast between that and the way Jesus came to earth, don't you think? I mean... Even though he was the creator and sustainer of all life, we talked about that last week as we started this series. Even though that's true, even though he was and, and is the king over all the universe, I mean, look at how he came. Look at how lowly and humble he, he came and how insignificant, really, uh, his appearance was, certainly at the time. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7 really uh, zero in on how humble he really was in his coming, keeping in mind who he really is. It makes the fact of how he came that much more striking, astounding really, that he, being who he is, came the way he did. It's incredible. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, and I'll be reading from the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, Philippians 2, 5-7, the Apostle Paul says this, "...have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, very God, we talked about that at length last week, although existing for eternity, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, the Father, speaking of God the Father, equality with God that which he had, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on tightly, you know, not letting go of it. Kind of like your little children did to you, parents, as you tried to leave a room and they held on tightly to your feet and you had to lead them along, or someone holding tightly to to something and not wanting to, to let go of it. It's not what he did. He didn't consider that a thing to be grasped. Notice the contrast. But emptied himself, emptied himself, by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Incredible. That the one who has existed for all of eternity, one with the Father, through whom the Father made everything, like John 1 talked about, adored by millions of angels, receiving all the glory and worship of heaven, reigning and ruling over all of creation, didn't consider what was rightfully and naturally his the glory of divinity, didn't consider that something that he would grasp onto and not let go of. Instead, he, he emptied himself. Well, this leads us to ask a very important question. Emptied of what? What, what did he empty himself of? What, what is Paul talking about here? Well, it's not his divinity. Let me just clear that up right now. He was not emptied of his divinity. Jesus did not become less God in the incarnation. Uh, this, this, what Paul is talking about here, there's a, a word for it. It's kenosis. It's the Greek word that's at play here in emptied. And what Paul is, is referring to is not that he, he became, Jesus became somehow less God when he became man. He, he didn't hold tightly, as we just saw, to his rights and his privileges as God, and he veiled, he concealed his heavenly glory throughout his earthly ministry and his life, except for that, that time of his transfiguration. Wow, what a time that must have been. When he was up there on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured before them, and all of his natural intrinsic glory that he had been concealing came out and he they saw him for who and what he he was Peter kind of stepped in it that's another sermon but they saw his glory which he had concealed so certainly it's true that that Jesus didn't hold tightly to his rights and his privileges as deity and he veiled his heavenly glory but he was not stripped of his divine attributes He wasn't stripped of his divine character. He wasn't stripped of any of his power. He wasn't stripped of his standing as one with the Father. All of that was still intact. So he wasn't emptied of that. In Christ's kenosis, the emptying, no deity was subtracted and humanity was added. It's a really important thing to remember. And and I phrased that in a way that I would think it would make it easier for you to remember. As you come to this passage, or you ever hear uh, any teaching on, on this concept, the, the uh, aspect of Christ emptying himself and that theological concept of the kenosis, it's important to remember that no deity was subtracted and humanity was added. Jesus was emptying himself into the humanity that he took on. Jesus chose to embrace. That human nature that was added to his divine nature, he embraced it and all of its limitations. Make no mistake, when he became man, he became really man, fully human, fully God, becoming fully human and still being fully God. Now, I mean, <laughs> we can't understand all the inner workings of how that's possible because that's something only God could do. But that's exactly what happened, 100% and 100%. Shared natures. And he chose to embrace that human nature with all of its limits. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible to think of, not just that it happened, but that he was willing to do that, willing to make that happen. Everyone likes stories about someone royal or noble disguising themselves and walking among commoners, experiencing life from their perspective. Think of uh, Mark Twain's classic story, The Prince and the Pauper, or Shakespeare's King Henry V, when King Henry disguised himself and walked around the camp with his soldiers the night before a really important battle with the French, and he heard what they really thought, and he also tried to encourage them and motivate them. Those stories, do something to us they you know they inspire us and and we we think of how amazing that is that someone high and lofty would lower themselves and want to be among the common people and of course what jesus did as described by paul here is infinitely infinitely more significant and striking than a prince and the pauper type thing because he didn't merely disguise himself that's not what's going on here This is not God the Son just disguising Himself as man. No, He he is adding a limited human nature, our limited human nature, to His unlimited divine nature. And He chose to operate under that human identity and that experience. That's how He lived His earthly life, those three and a half years of life and ministry, he lived it within that human identity and that human experience. And it wasn't just any human identity. And it wasn't just any experience. He didn't just come to see what it was like, got a good education on what it was like to be fully human. And it was certainly not the kind of identity or experience we would expect the Son of God to take on. I mean, even once we wrap our minds around the fact that God really came and God really became a man, you would think naturally, rationally, that he would assume the role that would be due him, a a role of royalty, right? A role of prestige. I mean, even earthly, humanly speaking, he was in the royal line of King David. You would think, humanly speaking, he would exercise that. That he would do what people thought he was going to do. Storm the gates, you know. Seize power. Seize control. Restore the kingdom to Israel. Demand everyone to, to see him as he really is and who he was and to give him honor and glory. That's what would make sense, humanly speaking. It's what you read about in other similar type stories of, you know, of a conquering, invading king. That's not the identity he took on, though. That's not the experience that he assumed and went through. No, Jesus, as we saw here in this passage, and all through his life, Jesus embraced the role and the life of a slave. And it is a slave. That's the right term. Uh, Maybe your translation says, says servant, but the Greek word is doulos, and it means Slave-slave, not like household servant, not a paid waitstaff. It means slave. It's one who was given over completely to the person they served. Their life was not their own. They were completely under the authority of their master or masters. That's what Jesus stepped into. A slave, bonded to his service. Think about that. Think about it. God the Son, the eternal Son of God, through whom everything was made, by whom all things consist, Colossians 1 tells us, He exchanged the outward appearance of His sovereign, divine majesty and glory. That's what's meant by the form of God. He existed in the form of God. His outward appearance of of all that made Him God, His divine majesty and glory. He exchanged all of that for the outward appearance of a submissive, humble slave. That's what is meant by the incarnation and the kenosis. What we celebrate at Christmas time and should every time of the year. I think the, the most powerful picture of this incredible reality that I, I admit and share with you is, is just about almost impossible to, to really wrap our minds around. I think the most powerful picture of this reality is found in John 13 1 through 5. I invite you to look at that with me. John 13 1 through 5. And we're going to see uh, an incredible picture of the reality that Paul talked about in Philippians 2 that we just read together. So John 13, 1-5. This is towards the end of Jesus' life and His ministry. um, Very, very close to going to the cross. And God's Word says this, Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, I love this next phrase, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, which is uh, even that itself is quite the picture of what he really did in coming to earth, that kenosis. Laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Then it just gets absolutely astounding, incredible. Then he poured water into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. (laughs) This is the one... We, we talked about this last week. This is the one that told Moses to remove his sandals from his feet because he was standing on holy ground when he appeared in the burning bush to Moses. And then after Moses, when Joshua was leading Israel and they were before the walls of Jericho and the commander of the Lord's army appeared to Joshua and Joshua said, Who are you? Are you for us? Or for our enemies, and he said, neither, but as the commander of the Lord's armies I have come. Now take off your shoes from your feet, for the place you are standing on is holy ground. That was the angel of Yahweh in both cases. That was Jesus before Bethlehem, the pre-incarnate Son of God, saying that to Moses and to Joshua. And now he is here. We just read it. He's here stooping down, removing his disciples' sandals and washing their feet. Is your mind not blown by that? It should be. The absolute picture of absolute humility. I mean, I I just think that is the most powerful and beautiful picture of the servanthood, the humility of Jesus. What he was willing to do, the depths that he, he really did go to, the lowliness that he exhibited, what he was willing to, to do and to show as the slave that he he became, the, the slave identity that he took on. The other thing that I, I want to point out to you, it's what I, I'm sure you already know, but it's worth remembering. And we, we see it here if you really, you know, just kind of read between the lines and look deeply at what really happened here. Serving others is messy. Isn't it? Serving other people is messy. And it's, it's uncomfortable. It's gross. It's degrading sometimes. It's hard. I mean, here's Jesus... Going past the fact that he is the eternal Son of God, the Creator of of everything, the King of Heaven, who was you know robed in majesty and glory, tying a servant's robe and washing feet. I mean, aside from the fact that it's who he is, think about what is happening here. I mean, feet, feet are being washed feet are disgusting, aren't they? I mean, anytime. They're gross. And this is this is the 1st century. I mean, look at your shoes, look at your feet, what you have covering them. Think about the footwear of this day. There wasn't much. And it's not like they had the same street sanitizing standards that we would have. You know, there's animals just walking around everywhere doing their business everywhere. And, and it was pretty hard to avoid that. And then there's all the, the dust. I mean, this is, this is the Middle East we're talking about. It's, it's a dusty place. You have all this stuff and all this grime, and you don't have access to the same type of cleaning that we do today. I mean, you get the picture? This would not have been pleasant. And Jesus did it anyway. You don't get much lower, even in that culture, than stooping down and washing feet. Serving others is messy, and it's uncomfortable, and it's awkward. But nonetheless, it's what all who are followers of Christ are called to do. We're called to be slaves to one another as our Savior became a slave for us. We're called to serve others even when it's messy, even when it's uncomfortable, not desirable, the way Jesus pictured here. So what is, what is all this at this point, just where we are at this point in the message and in, in our looking into God's Word? What does all this teach us? What's our takeaway practically? Well, I, I want to I suggest to you that it teaches that being humble isn't being weak. Being humble isn't being weak. So many times that's how it's perceived, you know. Humility is weakness. That's, that's certainly how society views it. That's certainly what our culture would say. Uh, that's certainly what the status quo would, would represent, that humility is weakness. But that's not the case at all. That's certainly what we see here. We see the opposite of that. Being humble isn't being weak. Rather, humility, true humility, is using your strength to serve others. That's what humility really is. That's what it's all about. Being humble isn't being weak. Humility is using your strength to serve others. And we see here, and, and I, I certainly hope you see it and you, you're grasping this, that our Savior is the perfect picture of both of those truths. You see that, don't you? With what we, we just looked at, that an awesome, awesome picture of Jesus serving the way He did right before going to the cross in the ultimate expression of service. Our Savior is the perfect picture of both of those truths, that being humble isn't being weak, and humility is using your strength to serve others. I mean, here's Jesus, the most powerful being in all the universe, showing that He's also the most humble, willing servant to ever walk the earth. Something else that's important to remember about humility false humility is real pride. False humility is real pride. Had a friend, a very good friend uh, in Virginia when we lived there for several years. Uh, His name is Mike Brown. Love Mike. Miss him a lot. He's serving in Peru as a missionary. And uh, he would sometimes introduce himself to be funny and to catch people off guard he would introduce himself hi i'm mike brown he would shake their hand you know and say he would say i'm mike brown i'm the most humble guy you'll ever meet and he would just wait to see what their reaction was and you know they he, he would get it he, he would get them every time like they'd wait huh what and so you know he would sometimes refer to himself that way and and of course it was as a joke and it was his way of of kind of getting people to think you know Uh, How humble really uh, are we? Because uh, so many times that's that's how we can be. We can fall into that trap of viewing ourselves as just so humble. Wouldn't it be nice if other people were as humble as we were? It's It's an easy thing to fall into. But there's nothing humble about wanting to be recognized for our humility. Have you ever been there? I mean, be honest with yourself. God already knows. Be honest. Haven't there been times where as you're serving and you're, you know, and you're not being recognized for that service and you're doing the hard thing, you're doing the, the messy thing, the unpleasant thing, haven't you thought or haven't you been tempted to think, haven't you heard the voice of the enemy tempting you to think, wouldn't it be nice if someone would just stop and recognize all that I'm doing? Why why doesn't anyone ever appreciate all that I do? Do they know what I do all the time? Do they have any clue how lost and messed up they'd be if I didn't do you know, fill in the blank? Sure you have. We're all prone to that. The false humility is real pride. And again, we see the exact opposite in the person of Jesus in all of his serving, and all of his humility, he didn't ever say, stop and pay attention to me, even though he could have, should have, considering who he is. So, putting it back to Jesus, how should seeing Jesus live the way he did, as we're seeing this morning, how should seeing Jesus live the way he did affect our lives? That's the question we need to ask, and how should it impact the way we live and the way we serve others and live with one another? I want to suggest to you this. Christ's humbling himself for us should should cause us to humble ourselves for others. That's a very practical takeaway. Christ humbling himself for us should cause us to humble ourselves for others. That's why our local Bible college's motto is what it is, Appalachian Bible College. Who can tell me, other than a student that goes there, what their motto is and has been? What is it? Because life is for service. That's why they exist. That's why they are doing what they do. It's why, despite all the hardships they've endured for decades, you know, all the economic downturns, low enrollments, all of that, that's why they continue. Because they believe what is true that life isn't to live for ourselves however however we want. Life as a Christian is for service. And we see that perfectly displayed in our Savior, that he came and he took on the form of a slave, though existing eternally in the form of God. And he lived his life not for earthly attention or recognition, but for service. Let's go back to that upper room scene, the Passover feast with Jesus and his disciples with their freshly washed feet. Let's go back there um, and Let's zero in on verses 12 through 15. So John 13, verses 12 through 15. The text says this, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you, here's the key, don't miss this, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. All right, so everybody get their shoes off. Let's do this thing. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I don't think I could do that. I probably should at some point. It would be good for me. But uh, I don't know if you'd want me to do that. But no. Uh, and Jesus wasn't saying, all right, there's still water here. Let's each one go down the line. That, that wasn't his point. Obviously, the key is I've given you an example. I have pictured something here that goes deeper than the physical act. That's what he was saying. I, being very God, being your, your sovereign, your Lord, and your, your teacher, the one whom you are recognizing rightly, I was willing to do this for you, showing that, that it's all about service, That to be one of my followers is about serving. And I'm not asking you to be or to do anything more than what I, myself, am willing to be and willing to do. That's our God. He doesn't tell us to do something that He hasn't already Himself done and pictured for us, and then gives us the supply, you know, the power, the ability to do the thing. That's our God. That's the uniqueness of our God, and that's the uniqueness of what it means to be a Christian. One, it's the uniqueness of living your life not for yourself but for others in service the way our Savior did for us. We serve Him first, and we serve others as an extension of our serving Him. That's that's one aspect of the uniqueness of Christianity that we need to get right, that we need to remember. We don't become Christians To live for ourselves, we become Christians to live for Christ who died for us and for other people. That's the first part. Secondly, the uniqueness is that our Savior and our God serves us first. He loves us first, and we love because He first loved us. And He served us first, and so we serve others because of His service to us. Unique very unique. And that's what he's picturing here. He's calling them to do and to be what he himself is and what he himself does. And that's the example we're to follow as well. We're to take that and apply that in how we interact and how we live and how we go through our Christian experience. It's very applicable, very relevant, and we would do well to do better at that. Now, let's having looked at that, let's compare that with what Paul said in the earlier verses in Philippians 2. You know, we started off looking at Philippians 2, and I want us to look at the earlier verses before he mentioned Christ's kenosis, the emptying. So look with me at verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Here's what we are supposed to be like. Here's how we're supposed to function. Here's what we're supposed to do as Christians, as followers of Christ. Verse 3, "...doing nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind." Regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Ooh, uncomfortable. Should be. Because you know as well as I do that none of that comes naturally. None of that comes naturally at all. Quite the opposite. Which is why it's a good thing that we don't have to depend on our natural ability to live that way. Isn't that a good thing? Considering that that's what we're commanded to do and to be like, and yet it doesn't come naturally, it's a really good thing that we don't have to depend on our natural ability. To follow through on that. Why? Why do we not have to? Well, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you to empower you. You have the very God dwelling in you, empowering you to live that way. What Philippians 2, 3, and 4 just instructed and commanded us to do. You have the Holy Spirit to empower you. And not only do we have the Holy Spirit's power, But my friends, we also have all the motivation that we should need to want to obey what we just read. All that Philippians 2, 3, and 4 and and all the similar verses and commands that we see in, in other pages of Scripture about what it means to really be a Christian and what it means to do the Christian life, to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory. To have a a humble mind and spirit and regard other people as more important than ourselves. All that is counterintuitive to being human. We not only have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but we have all the motivation and the desire that we could ever need to do that. And here's where our motivation comes from. It comes in what the incarnation is all about. It comes in the, the kenosis. It comes in... What we celebrate specifically this time of year at Christmas time. It comes from the cross, it comes from the manger. That's why Jesus came to the manger, right? That's why he came. We celebrate the manger and the nativity, and, and with good reason, we should celebrate that. We should focus on that. We should worship and be in awe at the coming of Jesus, the birth of the King, the birth of our Savior. Sing about that, sure. But keep in mind that He came to the manger so He would go to the cross. He was born a human being and and born the human child in the manger so that He would be able to go as the man to the cross as our sacrifice. That's our motivation for doing what Philippians 2 3 through 4 tells us to do. That's our motivation for living the Christian life, our motivation for being a servant. And let me give you two very specific passages as we close to show you uh, where our motivation should come from connected to that, why our motivation should be focused in on. The coming of Jesus and why He came. The manger to the cross. Mark 10.45 first. Jesus says this, and He says this, by the way, after correcting, rebuking His disciples for, once again, totally missing the point and arguing amongst themselves as to who is going to be great. And, and uh, two of them said, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do, Jesus. You know, they treated Jesus like what we so often do, like a Santa Claus. Hey, let us just sit on your knee and tell us what we want for Christmas. Tell us that we'll be able to sit, one on your left and one on your right, in honor and glory, in the place in your kingdom. And the other disciples heard that, and they started you know, rebuking them, and and they got into this big argument. Jesus said, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to be with you. That's not what it means to be my followers. It's not about getting ahead of one another. And then he says this, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, that's Him, that's Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, though He should have, though He certainly was worthy of that, He came to serve, and the fullest expression and the hope point of his service was the giving of his life as a ransom for many. And then, back in Philippians, Philippians 2.8, after Paul describes the, the great, incredible emptying of Jesus, the kenosis, his humility, he shows us the extent of that emptying, the extent of that being humbled the, the goal, no, the point of it all. Philippians 2, verse 8. Philippians 2, 8, Paul says this, "...being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That is what Christmas is all about. That is the reason for this special season. And that will be our focus next Sunday. I hope you will make plans to come back for that as we, as we join together to focus in on what we just read there, on the whole reason Jesus came to the manger so that he could go to the cross. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that we are in awe. I pray that we are in awe today as we have been reminded, as we have glimpsed again your incredible humility, that you were the humble servant. The most humble servant ever to live. Not just servant, but slave. There is no one greater than you, and there is no greater example of humility than you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for though you were Very God. The eternal Son of God. In complete harmony with the Father. One in nature, in character, in ability, and in power. One in glory. One in worship. Though you were that way and, and all that went into that, that you were willing to add to Your divinity our humanity. And that with that humanity, You served humanity and became obedient to the Father's great plan of redemption to the point of death, even death on the cross for us. Thank You, Lord Jesus. We praise You. May we not just praise You. May we not just be in awe. May we give You our lives in response. And may we live our lives to serve others to follow Your example. Help us by Your Spirit's power. Help us to be motivated by Your example. In glory and honor to You and for the benefit of others. And I pray all of this in Your great name. Amen.